Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Now, as I mentioned last week, uh, we're in between series at the moment and that allows me a little bit of room, if you like, a little bit of scope to share some of my own personal thoughts, some of my top of mind topics, if you like, at this moment in time. Well, there could be things that I've had, <laughs> I've had in mind or on the back burner for, for quite some time in this, uh, in this musings mini series. And obviously last week we talked about uh, our home as a very tax efficient asset and I uh, had a great response to that actually with quite a number of people uh, dropping me an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, just asking for the uh, the cheat sheet and spreadsheet that uh, that I made available um, to listeners who uh, of last week's show. So that's been pretty good. Thank you very much for those of you who've written in. You'll uh, you'll be getting your materials certainly by before this podcast goes to air. That's for sure. So um, yeah, it's been good. But uh, I think um, just one quick word that. Uh, typically happened I guess following last week's show we were obviously we talked one part of last week's show was to talk about taxation uh, quite obviously as I'm talking about a tax efficient investment and lo and behold on the very day on the very day the uh, the podcast was aired the chancellor in his budget he made a lot of changes and he made a lot of changes in particular that affect us as property investors in the buy to let sector and um yeah, but having said that, the um, the main principle of what I was covering last week has largely been unaffected, I have to say, because um, most of what I was referring to really sat in what's called capital gains tax uh, territory and, and, and lettings relief and this sort of thing. And certainly at the time of recording this episode, and as far as I can see, though those uh, tax uh, benefits have been left largely untouched. So the principles in last week's episode have remained largely unchanged, even if there's been a couple couple of bombshells that uh, that he did lay, lay, lay at our doorstep. And in fact, if anything, the, the principle in last week's show perhaps has become even more relevant uh, because um, probably as most of you will be aware by now that uh, mortgage interest relief, taxation relief for buy-to-let investors uh, for higher rate and highest rate taxpayers has been capped. It's been capped at the basic rate. So um, that will definitely impact upon the profitability of uh, standard buy-to-let for higher rate taxpayers. There's no doubt about that. So uh, the other change that uh, was was significant as far as the last week's episode was concerned was uh, an uplift in the um, tax-free allowance under the rent-a-room scheme. And if you remember, I talked about that, you know, it's uh, it's for homeowners taking in a lodger and they could uh, earn up to 4250 under the old rules before paying any tax. And that uh, 4250 has been raised to 7500 So um, it's very clear that that's an incentive also for homeowners to take in lodgers. And again, that will have uh, some consequences, I think, as things play out into the marketplace. There was another change, a withdrawal of... Uh, of a uh, uh, relief for which will largely affect people with uh, furnished accommodation, but it doesn't really affect the discussion we had last week. So I'm not going to go into that one too much in this particular episode. But uh, 
there will be some fallout. Absolutely, there will be for sure. So let's just part that and maybe we'll come back to uh, having a fuller discussion around taxation and, and how that can have a bearing on our strategy and that sort of thing in, in, a, in a subsequent episode. But right now, let's leave it. And uh, in, in the meantime, let's get cracking, if you like, with this week's property chatter, the main topic of discussion, which I'm going to call very nicely scammers, bloodsuckers and leeches. <laughs> There you go. That's setting up the theme. So if last week was something of a ramble, this week is something of a rant, I suppose you might say. So just to kind of give you a different type of energy in terms of the show this week. So without further ado, let's get into Property Chatter. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Yeah, so that was quite a, a heavy description, wasn't it? Scammers, bloodsuckers and leeches. And to be honest, I could have added in terms like sharks, crooks and bandits into that description as well. And, um, you know, when there's significant sums of money involved in an industry, um, as there is indeed with property investment, whether it's on the purchase side, the letting side or whatever, then and sadly that will attract people in, you know, less, less savoury people, let's say, to operate in this space as well. And so this this episode is something of uh, of a warning uh, or you know uh, kind of a, a cautionary note really is what I want to say um, in this particular area. So um, the episode has largely been inspired by a, quite an excellent thread on the Property Tribes forum, and um, Vanessa Warwick, who's one of the principals of Property Tribes, started a thread a thread for the month of July called Scam Awareness Month. And uh, I've, I've actually contributed to that thread personally, and there's some other excellent contributions that are, that are taking place, and uh, goes far beyond the scope of, uh, of my discussion today. So I'm going to signpost you to that discussion. I'm going to have a, a link to that thread in the show notes so that you can go over and see it for yourself. Uh, suffice to say that everything I'm going to cover in today's show is all my own knowledge. So, uh, or it's, it's all my own current knowledge. I'm, sh- I'm sure that I've probably begged, borrowed, and stolen it from various places as time's gone by. But a large part of it is also based on personal experience, uh, my own learning, my own uh, mistakes, really, as time has gone by. So a big shout out, really, to Vanessa and all at uh, Property Tribes for really the inspiration behind uh, behind today's uh, behind today's show. Now, the format of the show, what I'm planning to do is to look at some of the common areas or people, if you like, that we could get involved with in terms of our property investment uh, community and uh, and experience and, and transactions. And what I'm going to do is just highlight some of the potential things that could go wrong. And then, you know, some of the top tips. I've got, I think, three top tips in each of the areas I'm planning to cover. So it's, as I mentioned, it's not an exhaustive list of uh, potential problems or scams. And neither is a, an exhaustive list of uh, tips to stay safe. Towards the end of the show, I'll then share some of my, uh, what I'm going to call my general principles. And I've got six general principles, you know, really just to keep in mind, uh, top of mind, if you like, to stay safe out there um, in, in, this, uh, in, the, in, in this time. And for those looking for a, a little bit more, I'm, I'm trying to offer a little bit more, as, as evidenced last week and again this week, and I've pulled together a, a due diligence checklist for you, uh, which is going to go into a little bit no, more depth into the areas that I've been outlining. And that's available just if you if you drop us an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. Just call it, uh, just title it due diligence checklist 
I should really get some catchier names that I can say. Due diligence checklist. Uh, drop us your name in there as well, just so we know who we're contacting. That'll be perfect. And uh, we'll send that across to you. So without further ado, let's get started. So the uh, the first area that we could uh, look into, if you like, is the general area of letting agents. So um, in terms of obviously we're talking about potential scams. So what sort of things could happen? As I mentioned, it's not an exhaustive list, but what sort of things could happen or could go wrong as far as, you know, working with letting agents are concerned? Well, one of those is, uh, you see this from time to time in the news, is them running away with our rent. Uh, indeed, they can be running away with ours slash the tenants' deposits as well. So essentially, it's running away with our money. And uh, I think the other thing is that uh, not having sufficient client money protection in place, in, in other words, separating landlords' money from, you know, the, the letting agent's own money, for example, to pay salaries and this sort of thing. So if they lump it all in one bucket and don't have adequate uh, client money protection in place, there's a risk, obviously, that if they run short of money, there won't be enough to pay us for our rents that are due and that sort of thing. And I think in addition to, you know, the the rogue letting agent stories that you see coming up, there's been quite a lot of publicity recently. Um, I'm going to call it the Foxton's case. Yeah, you might have heard of it. But basically, the Foxton's case also highlighted another area that uh, is, a, is an area of potential risk. And that's really all about with doing uh, additional works, um, maintenance works, repair works in properties. And uh, there was there was a landlord who successfully sued Foxtons, and in fact, there's now potentially a class action uh, going to take place against them. Um, but it's I don't think it's exclusive to one letting agent. Uh, I think this is you know potential for for other ones to be involved with as well. Is where there are significant administration or management fees for arranging works. There was then trade uh, markups, trade markups against bills that tradespeople were. Um, submitting into the letting agent to pass on to the landlord. There was a markup taking place and even kickbacks, you know, so behind the scenes or even there was even money coming back to to a letting agent. Obviously, in this case, it was uh, Foxton's, you know, to to actually bump up the bill. So if you can add up all of these different dimensions, simple things like maybe changing a light bulb can add up to hundreds of pounds because there was money coming back, which the tradespeople would have to uh, cover. There was a markup added on by the letting agent and there was potentially an administration fee or a management fee being charged for handling the works on behalf of the letting agent as well. Now, if it's a full management contract, normally those sorts of things are covered. So there's a bit of a clue there because um, what I'm, my next point is all about small print. So uh, have a look at the uh, the terms and conditions that are in place and look out for things like lock-in periods, um, additional fees, um, fees for... Uh, termination or fees for the the tenant buying the property etc are things to look out for so so what are the top tips that we can we can adopt in this area uh, to protect ourselves with regard to potential rogue letting agents well, well one of the first things we can do is just to check really that they're a member of a recognized industry body and indeed a redress scheme 
And another important point is to check what protection they have for client money, whether it's an insurance scheme or a separate bank account. For example, there there's some of the things that uh, they they should have in place. So we can do that by just looking at the website, looking at their um, you know terms and conditions in any correspondence, and indeed asking them the question. It's always good to have this kind of dialogue. I think right at the beginning. The next thing really is I remember when I was at uh, when I was a student there was always this phrase of uh, RT RTQ it was I think uh, we some we sometimes slipped in an F but uh, RTQ RTQ even stood for <laughs> read the question uh, and there was an F as I mentioned slipped in there occasionally but uh, teachers would often say this to us just make sure that you read the question before you answer it so that you know what is being asked of you well we can flip this around a bit and call it RTA read the agreement so whatever agreement we're presented with it's worth spending a bit of time just reading it through uh, the should most agreements these days are in what's called plain English so I wouldn't say they're necessarily easy to read but they're easier than you know some of the old uh, old school English uh, sorry legalese that used to be used so uh, most most agreements are sort of understandable and I think it's a case of ask questions if you're not sure what does this mean you know, but what we're specifically looking for is opportunities for additional fees, uh, long lock-in periods uh, or notice periods and this sort of thing. So look out for that, ask questions and don't be afraid to ask for something to be changed. Now, um, a lot of people will push back if you ask for a change, but trust me, I've had changes on agreements. So so don't don't let it stop you is what I would say there. So obviously we started with letting agents and I guess it would make sense to talk about estate agents next. So that is my next uh, area in which we uh, were potentially open to uh, some form of scam and uh, some of the some of the common ones that uh, potentially can uh, can can pull us pull us down. One of them is what I call ghost buyers. So obviously if we're going to put in an offer on a property um, sometimes you get the agent coming back saying, oh, we've had a counter offer from another interested buyer. Now, it, that might be true, and I'm sure in a hot market it probably is true, but on, on, on a couple of occasions, unfortunately, it's not. Um, there is no other buyer, or there is no other buyer who's uh, potentially putting in an offer better than ours. So that's an, a risk that we can run. Um, another potential risk that we can we can run is if the um, estate agent fails to pass on our offer to the vendor. Uh, perhaps they think it's too low, or perhaps they're actually protecting, uh, you know, a pet uh, buyer or invest an alternative investor. I'll come on to maybe how in a second. So um, they they simply don't pass on our offer. So that's something else that can can happen to us. And of course, then it means we're missing out on potential good good transactions, good deals. And the other area potentially is what I call brown envelopes. Now, it probably speaks for itself, but effectively, it's backhanders, kickbacks, bribes, fraudulent activity, whatever you want to call it, cash in hand, cash under the table to, um, you know, probably in, in conjunction with one or, or both of the uh, previous points that I've just mentioned, particularly the, uh, when it relates to failing to pass on offers, I would suggest. So, you know, it has been known uh, for agents to either seek some sort of extra recompense personally uh, or indeed um, you know we might find strange things going on potentially and it might just be an explanation as to what's happening so top tips in this area um, again it's uh, checking out the reputation of the estate agent we're dealing with we can often do that online uh, 
Uh, there's a number of websites we can go to check reputation indeed for letting agents as well as estate agents. Make sure of course a member of a trade body and one of these redress schemes. I mentioned the property ombudsman. Uh, obviously the property ombudsman would say things like you know, they won't say it literally, but it will, it will say things like, you can't take a bribe <laughs> uh, or, or cash in hand because obviously that would be a clear conflict of interest uh, and uh, and that would be prohibited. So making sure they're a member of a redress scheme is a good is a good safety measure. I think potentially also dealing with one, uh, one or two different members in the office could also help and then other people are aware that uh, offers are, are being circulated for different properties and, and that sort of thing. So it's not just confining our activity to one individual. And I think uh, I think the other one is to try and have some form of direct communication with the vendor. Now, an estate agent is going to resist that for obvious reasons, but if we could have direct communication with the vendor, it's going to be less likely that our offer won't be submitted and that kind of thing. So that's a good idea. And the other thing I would say is in addition to um, putting in an offer verbally, perhaps over the telephone, perhaps in the office of the estate agent, is to back it up in writing. And then it's uh, there's always an audit trail. We can always prove at least that uh, there were, uh, our offer was was made in good faith. And uh, I would say this one's perhaps to be a little bit careful about. But uh, if we are suspicious, what we potentially could do is uh, drop a letter into the letterbox of the vendor direct. If we're if we're you know submitting an offer, especially if it's a low offer, and we want to explain the reasons why, um, we do obviously run the risk of alienating that estate agent if we're going direct to vendor. So keep that in mind. It could burn the relationship. But I say in extreme cases, if we're suspicious, that's something that potentially we could consider at least. And I think the other thing really is just to probably state the obvious, and that's if we operate with personal integrity. Uh, then it's going to be harder for you know some of these people to operate, and this isn't just you know confined to estate agents. It's uh, it's in any of the areas that I'm mentioning. So um, I was asked once in a different guise. I was asked once to pay sweeteners was the phrase that was used with me, and I was working in the as a finance broker at the point in time. I was like sweeteners. What do you mean? <laughs> and basically, it was cash. Uh, it was cash to make the deal come in my direction, and uh, I just declined, flatly declined. Well, I didn't get the business, um, not surprisingly, but you know, I, my integrity was intact, and I didn't get involved in something that you know, because I think it's a slippery slope. Once you start getting into these uh, types of transaction, then it's very, very difficult to get out. So, if we operate with uh, with personal integrity, and if all of us do, it's going to be harder for people to operate in the darkness. We're going to be shining light, if you like. There, so. Maybe it's a little bit of a moral statement, but I think, you know, let's, if we all operate with personal integrity and refuse to get involved in these activities, it's going to make it harder for it to exist in the long run. And then we all look after one another in that respect. So the next area, obviously, we've talked about letting agents, we've talked about estate agents. The next area, really, that naturally follows is, is tenants. Now, what can happen here? Well, um, tenants can abscond. They could literally leave. I, I had that recently myself. They disappeared and uh, didn't see out the tenancy. And I've now had a default uh, judgment against them. Let's see if we get the money. But that's happened. But, you know, in terms of scamming and uh, fraudulent activity, um, other things that potentially could come up are subletting. You never know. They may be renting out as a, as an HMO when we're not looking. So uh, subletting is a possibility. Cannabis farms you've probably heard about from time to time uh, is another one. Um, malicious damage and theft. I've heard of cases of uh, copper piping being taken, electrical wiring, 
um, you know, all sorts of damage and theft from properties happening as well. And um, all of those three can be easily fixed, which I'll come on to just, just by having an extra pair of eyes, really. But they can all be fixed, these three former ones. But the, the, the last one I'm going to mention is a little bit trickier, and that's called identity theft. And uh, if we have any correspondence going to the address for, especially for example, if it was our former home, it's quite quite likely we might have a bit of mail that still gets through, even if we've got a redirection in place. Um, there's an opportunity, let's say, for someone to get hold of that information and indeed steal our identity or indeed try and steal the property. So um, in terms of top tips, what can we do? The first thing I think we should always consider with a tenant is to do thorough tenant referencing. You know, right from the beginning, um, don't just go to the last landlord, don't just go to the last employer, do some thorough checks to make sure that we, we understand what's, what's going on with that particular tenant. They've got a, a background that we can check into. And then regular inspections. So um, always recommend this, especially early on in the tenancy. Within the first three months, we should really go and visit that property. Uh, and that really puts the tenant on notice that we are going to come. We're going to have a look at what they're doing. And uh, I think, you know, those people who'd be more inclined to do subletting, cannabis farms and, you know, steal things from us, they're going to less you know likely to do that. So regular inspections. So within the first three months, certainly, and then potentially six months thereafter is certainly what I would look to do in, in, uh, in terms of inspections. Having the right insurance is also important. I mentioned malicious damage and theft and most, uh, well, sorry, standard landlord policies usually exclude that as a specific provision. So make sure you have that in place because you never know. Um, that's, that can be really expensive. I know that uh, the person I was just thinking about who had this uh, awful experience, I think it was something like £10,000 um, was this expenditure to put things right after the tenants stole basically the whole central heating and electrical you know wiring system in the property so it can add up to quite a sizable sum and you don't really want to be taking a risk there for what is quite a small premium addition for a decent policy and uh, the, the mention about identity theft um, the one of the things we can do obviously get get all your mail sent to your new address and I don't mean redirect I mean notify everybody about uh, your new address is the first point but the second point is um, make sure that land registry have multiple contact uh, sources for you so often there's just a name and address you know of the owner of the property but these days it's possible to have an alternate name and address that could be a solicitor could be another family member and equally an email address and uh, I would suggest having all three. So uh, have all three registered at land registry. It's going to make it extremely difficult for someone then to take that property away. And uh, identity theft, as I mentioned, we can take steps by certainly avoiding there is no uh, mail going to the property and running that risk there. The, the next category is rogue traders. <laughs> There's a TV program by the name. You've probably seen quite a lot in this area. Uh, but as far as property is concerned, some of the, some of the big watch areas, I guess, could be, uh, things, especially on refurbishments, things like hourly contracts. Um, that's a recipe to print money. Um, works not required. I've had situations where I've been quoted for damp work of, with a bill of something like £2,000. When in fact it was a condensation issue which was easily remedied by having a 150 pounds dehumidifier installed in the property. So, you know, there wasn't the work really wasn't required. And then I've even had a situation where I've been quoted for, charged and indeed paid for works to be undertaken only to discover later that they weren't done at all. Um, so, for example, I had some windows and doors fitted. 
and a property recently. Some of them were fitted, but not all of them were. And so, um, yeah, that was quite a shock. So what are the top tips? Probably can guess. Um, you can go for fixed price contracts with tradespeople um, and have a retention, have a retention to cover works not completed and the snagging list, etc. So typically a 10 or 15% retention is normal and people usually come to expect that. Um, get multiple quotes. So, um, you know, especially for large scale works, I mentioned this damp problem, uh, something like £2,000 bill. I'm definitely going to get at least two other quotes there and have three quotes. So get different tradespeople and get different opinions. And then you can work out if, um, you know, the works are really necessary or not. And I think the final thing is uh, two pairs of eyes have work inspected. So either go yourself, have a friend or local friendly tradesperson or contact, go in and have a look at the the works. Uh, or even the tenant, just give the tenant a call and, and just ask them. Um, I, I did this once. So I had uh, I had a, a banister rail fitted or it, actually there was already part of a banister rail fitted and it went round a corner. So I just finished it off so that there was uh, security walking up and down the stairs. And uh, I just contacted the tenant afterwards. There was that work done okay? And I've discovered that the uh, the tradesman, he basically just painted the banister or varnished rather the banister in different colours. So I wouldn't have known unless I'd have uh, followed that work up myself. And that's what I did in that particular case. So that's that. And then um, I guess the other area is what I call bogus professionals or partners that we could uh, we could potentially get involved in. Now, um, you just 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 uh, look at things like fake solicitors, fake financial advisors and dodgy deal sources. <laughs> so um, they've all been there. Um, I've, I've personally encountered not the first two. But certainly the last one of dodgy deal sources. Um, but I've heard recently there's a, a case of uh, people uh, taking on the identity of a solicitor or, or not really being a registered solicitor and indeed mortgage advisor doing something similar as well. So these things are out there. So how can we check? The reason my top tips, how can we check that we don't fall victim to these scams? Well, first thing we can do is usually these people are that there's a professional body or a professional register. And uh, for, so, for example, the uh, the solicitors, solicitors are members of SRA and financial advisors are a member of the FCA. You can check online uh, that these people are who they say they are, what, what their registered address is, etc. So go and look them up. The next thing is to make sure that anybody you're dealing with has uh, proper client money protection. A bit like I mentioned earlier with the estate agents or the letting agents. Similarly with uh, solicitors in particular, uh, that they've got client money protection or escrow or separate bank accounts in place to keep client money separate. Uh, and I think as far as the deal sources are concerned, try and uh, reduce the amount of upfront payments as far as possible um, is, is my only real advice in that respect. And I guess finally, there's been a recent news story, in fact, in the last week about um, a, a couple who had, um, well, significant amount of money. Uh, for, it was a house deposit on a, on a substantial property, um, you know, siphoned off in a different area. So having secure data and IT systems for the partners as well as ourselves plays a part here because uh, in that particular case, what had happened is the solicitor's email was interrupted, um, intercepted rather, from the fraudsters and uh, an email was sent to the buyers telling them there was a change in bank uh, bank details 
and to send the, the money to a different bank account. And and they did. And fortunately, the, the money went amiss. So um, a kind of a follow-up tip to that is, is maybe for something like that to make a phone call and check. Don't just take it at uh, face value from an email. And then, of course, we've got transactions or deals themselves. You know, this is another potential area in, you know, in whole that things can can happen, can go wrong. And I think the, the first question to ask is, is it too good to be true? Um, now, some deals are good, absolutely, but is it too good to be true? So you're hearing claims like no money down or 100% rent guarantee for X number of years or massive discounts, you know, in a rising market, massive discounts. These are all potential alarm bells. I'm not saying that the all deals that mention these words are bogus, but they're just watchwords and for us to be careful about. And, um, and indeed, there are some very sort of what I call scammy structures or riskier structures. There's probably a, a better way of, of putting it, in fact. Some types of transaction can lend themselves to being open to a scam. Um, again, not necessarily all of them are. It just means that there's potential extra precaution we might want to take in these cases. One of them is um, rent-to-rent. For example, where there's, it's like a sandwich. There's a vent, there's a, a landlord or owner of a property. There are end tenants and somebody in the middle. And there's quite a lot of recipe for things to go wrong there. Similarly, sale and rent back. That's actually illegal now. Gifted deposits. That's mortgage fraud. Overseas property. That's highly unregulated. So, you know, lots of areas there to, to get involved in. And I, I guess my top tips would be to do our own thorough research and due diligence. Take our time. So, yeah, fine. A good deal is going to go quickly, but take our time We're understanding who the, who the introducer is. Do our research on them. Take our time before we get involved in any transactions. So, take our time with the introducer. Maybe then we can commit to working faster on the individual transaction is a watchword. And I guess the other thing, I've mentioned some things are clearly illegal. So, check the legality of what we're doing. Next is what I call catfish. Uh, a catfish is uh, often put into a barrel of cod and, you know, tries to resemble the cod just to keep them on their toes is where the original term came from. But in modern day parlance, it's basically people pretending to be somebody else, somebody they're not. So watching out for these people. Um, similarly, we've got um, what I call this charming man. If people are just too charming and too too friendly and too nice, you know, um, I'm not saying that there aren't nice people, but just kind of Check them out, really. Don't take at face value. And um, what if we get a strange approach? You know, we, we should be careful if people who are approaching us, we've, we're, they're not known to us. So we're, we don't previously know them or they're not introduced formally by somebody else. So there's some of the watch things to be aware of there. And in terms of what we can do to protect ourselves, we can... So, for example, we can check addresses of people. Where are they registered with 192.com and other similar websites? Again, we can go back to the professional bodies like the solicitors, uh, SRA and FCA for mortgage brokers and advisors, because sometimes people are pretending to be a legitimate company. They're, they're catfishing. Yes, they're mirroring somebody who's legitimate, but they're, they're actually bogus. They're operating somewhere else. So it's just to check the addresses that they tie up and that type of thing, check the website addresses and the email and that kind of thing um, before we get too involved. The other thing we can do is quite a nice little trick. In fact, I learned from the TV program Catfish is what's called an image search. 
using Google. And uh, what you can do there is just uh, copy, a, copy an image, drop it into a Google image search, and it will show where else on the web those images are published on other websites and uh, social media forums and this sort of thing. So that's a really handy tool. And um, the post that I mentioned, or the thread rather, I mentioned on Property Tribes, I gave an example here where uh, my my uh, nephew was uh, approached by someone basically scat trying to scam him out of a, a sum of money, and uh, the picture used was uh, used on a multiple mo uh, social media profiles. So a Google image search revealed that quite quickly. And I think the other thing to do is don't work on what I call six degrees of separation. Now we use, everybody knows everybody through six degrees of separation, but I think we need to be a little bit closer to people, especially if money's changing hands. So that means getting comfortable with people, understanding who we're dealing with, finding people that either we know in common or we've got a recommendation that we can, we can, we can go on. So they're my top tips in this area of catfishing. Then, of course, we've got uh, the headline or what the heading, if you like, a virtual community. You know, obviously, as, as uh, technology is a great thing, but, you know, technology also opens up um, the prospect of, uh, of virtual crime. Um, some of the most common ones are phishing, as it's called, with a PH, phishing, where uh, links, email links and website links are, are hacked to, to ch channel us off in a different direction and collect personal data from us. Um, there's telephone fraud or telephone scam where callers ring us up, pretend they're from a, a credit card company and just say, call us back on the, on the number on your card and we'll be able to invalid validate your account, etc. And then they don't hang up. So you don't actually make a phone call. So, you know, always check the, the number you're ringing and maybe ring from a different phone and that kind of thing, uh, is what I'd recommend there. I think another one that people, are largely unaware of is that if we share our bank details, a third party can actually set up a direct debit just with our bank details alone. So just be careful who we're giving our bank details to is really the watchword there. Uh, in fact, that is kind of taking me into the top tips. So avoid taking, uh, sorry, sharing bank details with people. Uh, maybe consider using PayPal or that kind of thing where we don't formally share bank details for transfers. Or we can take the other person's bank details uh, and then validate that information. So if we get it in an email, we, we validate it over the telephone. Here's one example of how we can do that to protect ourselves. I think the other thing is um, just to invest really into some decent antivirus, anti-spam and network protection software. Uh, some of the big brands like uh, McAfee and Norton and others. But, you know, it's worth spending, a f it's worth spending a hundred pounds or so on this because, uh, they do actually provide quite a layer of uh, protection. And indeed, password protection tools. I personally use LastPass. There are other ones just to help keep our passwords safe and memory. And so we have to put in easy to crack ones as well. That's another benefit. And I think the other thing, as I mentioned with the uh, credit card example, is just be careful about giving information over the telephone. People like this never ask for PIN numbers, for example. So there you go. They're the, they're the main um, areas that I wanted to talk about in today's uh, episode. And I guess um, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, there's some, guide, there's some general principles here, isn't there? So, yeah, what are the general principles? Uh, I guess I'm going to summarize them as uh, guard your wallet. Um, so make sure you keep your, your bank and credit card details safe. Uh, things like client money protection, escrow, reducing upfront payments also fall into that category. So guard your wallet. The next uh, principle is uh, keep your data safe and secure. 
and that really points to the the kind of online protection tools and the the telephone uh, the telephone scamming type of approach that I've alluded to there. And equally, I mentioned this uh, this uh, communication with LAM registry, having multiple contact points at LAM registry, because uh, you know that would be quite a big uh, loss if somebody had actually taken the title of uh, a Bytelect property uh, without us knowing. And I think um, to steal a phrase from Warren Buffett really and translate it is understand what we're getting involved with. So he would talk about it in investment terms, but I, and, and I'd apply it similarly, but instand, understand what and who, in fact, we're getting involved with. So that means things like reading the contract, asking questions and that kind of thing. The next area really is what I call building in safety checks. So things like I've got a principle, two pairs of eyes, you know, get it's not just one person looking at something. It's a second pair of eyes, whether that's a contract, a piece of work or whatever. So usually and that kind of leads on to maybe having physical inspections. So not necessarily just relying on someone to say, yeah, that's done is uh, is maybe having someone to validate uh, what's been said. And uh, not taking things at face value. So. You know, I did actually write trust no one, but thought that was a little bit too negative. So don't take things at face value. It's perhaps a bit more of a positive uh, spin. Um, and all I mean there is really just do your due diligence and research. And uh, uh, I, I think Google is our friend in this respect. And, and Google two, three, four, five pages in is definitely our friend in this respect. So professional scammers are really good at burying bad news. And that's why I recommend going a few pages deep. So just Google companies and directors and uh, anybody we're getting involved in uh, is a great starting point. And my last point really in terms of general principle is don't go it alone and don't suffer in silence. You know, we don't have to be the Lone Ranger. Um, we can reach out to others. There's we, there's a community. Um, there are plenty of forums that we can ask questions. Who's heard of these people? Any good or bad? And also to work on recommendation referral as far as we possibly can, even if we're working outside of our normal area or we're new to something. So they're my general principles. Obviously, I've been talking a lot about, you know, the areas that, that are potential for scams. So it's uh, it's something of a of a rant, as opposed, or, or a cautionary tale this week. And hopefully that's been useful. Um, and I've signposted out, big shout out to the Property Tries Freb to keep ourselves safe out there and uh, not fall victim to scammers and bloodsuckers and leeches. But right now, and until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.